Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Don Lai, who is Professor of Astronomy at Cornell University. His research interests include astrophysics of neutron stars, black holes, white dwarfs, exoplanets, and astrophysical fluid dynamics. Welcome, Don. Thank you very much, Gio. It's a, it's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. Yes, yeah, so thanks for doing this. So our discussion today is going to be a little bit technical, but, but uh, really interesting. So. I want to start with uh, one of your older papers from 2014, Chaotic Dynamics of Stellar Spin in Binaries and the Production of Misaligned Hot Jupiters. You said many exoplanetary systems containing hot Jupiters are observed to have highly misaligned orbital axes related to the stellar spin axes. So before we get into the details of this, so hot Jupiters are um, our own Jupiter-like planets, uh, but they are much closer to the star. Is that what a hot Jupiter is? Indeed, indeed, right. Hot Jupiter are these extrasolar giant planets, so Jupiter-like planets, but they are orbiting other stars. And as you said, the orbital period, it's they're very close to a whole, whole star. So the typical orbital period is like one or two days, a few days, one to five days, instead of years. Okay, right. Uh, so, uh, so it's uh, very close. So that was a one of the great surprises in astronomy over the last several decades. Uh, it's a great discovery, and uh, in the late 1990s, right. Uh, so that's indeed the hot Jupiter. It's a puzzle, so, basically. So, so what's the orbital period of our own Jupiter? Uh, ten years, ten to fifteen years, that kind of thing. I should know the number, but it's years, tens of years. <laughs> The many, many years, and we have Jupiter-like planets orbiting um, uh, other stars, but they orbit really fast, like with a few days. 
indeed that's uh that's immediately give you it's a quite a surprising result right you can when first discovered in the late 1990s um it was quite surprising and uh, so the immediate question is how they are formed how do you get them to form so close to the their host star right it's a very puzzling result right and uh it was a complete surprising result so the general thinking is that uh uh, based on our understanding of how planets are formed, is that they must be forming, they must have formed very far away from their host star at very large distance, like our own Jupiter from the yeah. sun, right? And but somehow they they after after they form, they migrated through some kind of dynamical processes. Mm -hmm. They migrated from far away of the host star to the inner vicinity of the star to be very close to the star, right? So that's the general idea. Now, exactly how they migrate, it's a question that's still being debated in the community. Yeah. So I don't know much about this, uh, Dong. Um, so, uh, so Jupiter is a, is a gas giant. So if Jupiter were very close to our own sun, wouldn't that have an effect on the on the gases? And would, would it actually start losing the gas? Is, is uh, that... Good question. Um, somewhat, but not completely. I mean, if in, indeed, if you put our own Jupiter at a, you know, a very close distance from our own sun, the Jupiter will begin to lose mass slowly, but not completely. It's not going to lose, uh, you know, the mass will not be gone, basically. We'll lose a little bit of mass. Indeed. A little bit of mass. Yeah. So, so they, they can still survive. They can still survive. But the question is the formation. It's very yeah. hard how to imagine how you can because when you are, when you put this this thing so close to the to the star, everything's so hot. It's baking, you know. The radiation <laughs> is very hot. So yeah. how do you make things condense? You know, out of this, uh, you know, initially the way we think about planet formation is that initially you basically have a gas and dusty disk around the star, yeah. right? And then somehow you need to lump them together, produce lumps. And they coagulate, right? So, so that's easy, relatively easy to do at far away distance because it's cold, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. But when you put them so close to the sun, it's so hot already. How can you make them lump out of this? It's very difficult. So that's why the general thinking, uh, more or less consensus, is that the these giant planet they are they, they were formed very far away from their host star, right? And then some through some dynamical processes, they migrate inwards to their current very close location. Very close okay. location. So, so going back to the paper, this is about sort of the, the misalignment. Okay. Bit, right. So, so, so could you define um, what you mean by sort of the, so, so, so okay. what's the end of the sun? How do okay, you so let me let me. This is another surprise. <laughs> like now, in the solar system, everything is very ordered, right? The sun is at the center; it's spinning around its axis. There's the spin axis, right? Yeah. Spin axis. Now, all the other planets, it's orbiting around it. They are the orbital axis. Each planet has orbital angular axis, right? So you know. I know, like the, the spin axis of the sun, the orbital a, orbital axis of the planets, the orbital the, axis is perpendicular to the plane. Right? The, the top top spinning, so you can Indeed. actually determine the axis. Indeed. And then the, the things around it, 
um, we can determine, you know, sort of the plane of that, right? Yeah, right. The axis is perpendicular perpendicular to that plane. Okay. Yeah. Now, in the solar system, all the all these axes are more or less aligned, mm. right? The sun's spin axis, the planet's orbital axis, they're all more or less similar. Now, if you a picture of the solar system, you know, it's very ordered. Everything is in the plane. The sun's is the equator is also in the same plane, right? All, all the axes are actually aligned within seven degrees, not completely. They are seven, seven degrees, yeah. seven degrees, but well, not a big deal. I mean, there's a few degrees, right? Okay, <laughs> okay, so they are more or less aligned. So, in the solar system, the sun's spin axis is aligned with the planet's orbital axis within a few degrees. <laughs> so everything's very ordered, so that's consistent with the general notion of our general understanding of how planets and stars formed, mm. right? Because if you think, uh, that I mentioned briefly before, right, the, the, the basic notion of star and planet formation is that you have basically a proto-star, proto-sun, right? They're spinning and then they're surrounded by a, a disky, dusty disk material, right? And the, everything is sort of a, rotating in the same sense, same direction. So yeah. you form a planet out of that disk, the orbital, plane will be the same plane. So, so it makes sense that everything is ordered. So that's that's what we find in the solar system. Now for the hot Jupiter system, right? That's a that's a, a misalignment. It's a big discovery. It's a big surprise, big, big surprising finding. Namely, what you, very often you find that uh, some of the the, the, the the hot Jupiter system, they have their host star, this, this the parent star is spinning one direction but the orbit is in different direction, mm. right? Sometimes they are opposite, what we call retrograde. So mean, meaning that the, the, the star has a top, right? Stellar is, is, is like this, right, spinning, but the planet's orbit is sort of opposite, opposite way. Mm. So it's completely so it's different, completely different from what, what you envision what the solar system will be like. Yeah. So is that symptomatic of your what you were talking about before? Is that symptomatic of the fact that these planets formed elsewhere that migrated toward the star? Well, okay, so I haven't told you what what's the way or how do you migrate yet? I'm just telling you two the, the puzzle, right? The puzzle is right, first of all, you have this planet so close to the star. That's already a puzzle. The second puzzle is these planets often have an orbit completely in different direction from the spin axis yeah. uh, of the whole star, right? So the question, how do you get such a thing? Okay, how do you migrate? How do how you form a planet far away migrate? And how do you get this misaligned configuration? Mm -hmm. Right? So that's, okay, so that's, uh, that's a question. So one, one appealing solution, one possible appealing solution, it's, a, it's a, what we call high eccentricity migration. So let me describe that, right? So what happens is that, okay, so initially you have a, you know, hot, uh, Jupiter far away from the, the host star, large distance, a yeah. few, you know, just current location, right? Very far, far away, right? And it's it's moving in the same direction as the, the host star. It's ordered right now, initially, after immediately after their formation, everything's ordered. Now imagine you have, a distant companion. Yeah. You know, this, this whole star has a planet, but you have a neighboring star. 
Right. What we call a binary star. So binary star is not unusual in astronomy, in the galaxy. In fact, more than 50% of the stars are in binaries. Our sun happened to not be in a binary system, but many other stars actually come in pairs. Okay, so, yeah. so binary star. So, so again, the picture is we have a star with a giant planet called Jupiter in a normal, newly formed, happy configuration. But now imagine you have a far away companion, stellar companion. Hmm. Okay. Now what happens is that even though this companion is very far away, the gravitational force from that companion star is going to act on the orbit of these planets. Yeah. It's going to make the orbit become very eccentric. Eccentric, so the orbit is no longer circular. So it's about elongated, very elongated, like the comet. If you think about comet, right? In the solar system, the comet, they, they come from far away and they come, you know, very close to the sun and then you go back to far away places and come back. So that's called eccentric orbit. So what I'm saying here is that this companion star, even though they are, even though it's very far away, its gravitational force acting over time, if you accumulate over time, can can do some, can change the orbit shape, shape of the planets in such a way that the orbit become very eccentric, yeah. such that it can come very close because very because it's very eccentric means that it can come very close to the to the whole star, hmm. right? Okay, and uh, and and then once it become very close to the star, then you can imagine some some dissipation process, some frictional force can circularize it. So the whole star sort of captures it. Exactly. Yeah, in, yeah, that's another way to put it. Yeah, indeed. Right? Because when they're far away, the planet's far away from the whole star, you cannot capture it. But when, when it comes very close to it, then you can imagine some dissipated process, friction, that kind of thing, dynamical process. Then they can be sort of capture it and make it make the orbit shrink. And then that's how 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 this thing uh, so works. Companion doesn't have to be a star. It could be a neutron star. It could be other objects also. Yeah, it could be other. Uh, could be a neutron star. Could be other objects. But most likely, it's another star because, as I said, binary stars are come are quite common. Binary star could be quite common. Could be another planets, distant planets, right? There could be another planets. It's also possible, right? And so, so this process of binary systems uh, essentially pushing um, something to a sort of an elongated orbit and then ultimately captured by the, the whole star. Mm -hmm. So at that point, are, are you saying, Dong, that um, we don't really have any predictions as to what those orbital planes might, uh, how they will align? With the with the host host star. Okay, so here here it's the here it's the thing, right? So yes. when it uh, push, when this this uh, this this distant star, the distant star companion star does not have to be aligned. Yeah. With the original orbit, right? So you have this again, the parent star, the planet, they are in one plane. The host star can be in very different direction in different plane. So right. when they push the orbit of the planet into an elongated orbit, they also change the orientation of the orbit. Yeah. They can also change the orientation, the orbital inclination of the orbit. Okay. And uh, so, so you can imagine now, so now from this, you can imagine now that basically uh, because of this uh, distant host star, it actually 
change, uh, it, it, this holds actually does two things. First, it makes the orbit elongated, allowing the parents start to capture the planets. Second, it actually changed the orientation of the orbit. You know, the original orbit plane of the planet is in one direction, but the because of the gravity of these other distant companion star, it actually changed the orientation hmm. of the thing, of the of the planet star. <laughs> okay, so you can imagine. So you, you we start out with an ordered planetary system, right? But because of this very far away companion. You would think it's not important, but over time, remember the time helps us in astronomy. You have a lot of time, you know, millions of years, billions of years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can, the, the gravity over time, acting over time, they change the orbit orientation, and then that you you begin to have this non-trivial misaligned configuration. So is that the leading hypothesis? So if there's a binary star of sufficient mass and interacting with you know, something that is with the whole star's uh, planets. If there's a binary star of sufficient mass, over time it could basically completely misalign into the, the current system. Mm -hmm. Is is that the leading hypothesis? Are there other other ways, other possibilities? Oh, there are other possibilities. So this, the other possibility, okay, before, uh, the other possibility of migrating this thing is just, uh, for example, you form this giant planet far away, but the gas around the star is still there. Yeah. Right? Remember, remember the 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 initial condition, the, the the way we think about how planet form is that you have a star surrounded by dusty disks. Out of the dust disk, you form this lump of planets, right? Now you form this planet in the still you still have disk around it. Then. You can imagine the planet is moving in the disk, right? It's, when it's moving in the disk, it's going, going to experience friction, just like when you have a you know, tennis ball moving in the air, it's, a, it's experiencing friction, so it's going to slow down. So what happens here is that, again, you have a planet moving in the disk. It's going to experience drag force, so it's gradually spiraling in the disk. Yeah. Spiraling closer and closer to the star. Okay, though so eventually, of course, will be very close. But then you can imagine that the problem. You know, how do you stop it? How do you <laughs> maybe maybe get eaten up by the star, right? And uh, this also has a problem. How do you in this picture everything will still be ordered, right? You will not get this misalignment. Right, because you can imagine, you know, this thing initially is everything in the same plane. The the star is rotating in the same direction, so migrating, you're gonna get the aligned system. Yeah, it's not gonna this this so this hypothesis, this we call disk disk driven migration, can explain can possibly it's possible to explain this migration process, but it's very difficult to explain this misalignment process. Right, why is it misaligned? It's actually quite difficult in this picture. Right, uh, so that's why I many of us like this other way. Basically, you form this planet, the planet is happy sitting there, and then over a long time, because you have a giant companion, very far away star, stellar companion, through the feet, the gravity of the companion, they can do this, pushing the planet into eccentric orbit, elongated orbit, and at the same time, change the orbital orientation and therefore producing this 
misline the configuration that we see today. So, so that two, was a. Mm -hmm. So two questions, Tom. So um, since we don't find much misalignment in the solar system, mm -hmm. can we reasonably assume that there is no big thing out there that we haven't seen yet? Excellent question, indeed. <laughs> Indeed, that may be. Indeed, that may be the yeah. Our solar system is very ordered, right? So they don't have this hot Jupiter. Also, don't so they. It's indeed hot Jupiter is not very common. It appear it's a it's a, occur it, a, a happens around the five percent of the stars. So our system, our solar system is not one of them. It's not one of them. So indeed, so that may be you know basically yeah. You need a special special nearby, sufficient nearby companion to do this kind of things, right? Also, and, uh, also right, so, so I was I was wondering, I, I obviously don't know anything about the uh, Jupiter is obviously a much smaller body compared to the sun. Indeed. But the, the sort of the Jupiter sun system, has it had any effect on the Earth, the Mar you know, Mars and, uh, and stuff inside, um, any sort of orbital fluctuations that we can see. Oh, indeed, they can. They can indeed affect it. Of course, the gravity from the Jupiter, in, especially in the earliest, earliest stage of the solar system, uh, Jupiter giant planets certainly play an important role in shaping the architecture of the solar system. But we don't I see know, we don't see misalignment like we see in this hot Jupiter system. We don't see that, right? Because I mean, that's consistent with the picture, with the isolated picture where, right, in our solar system, basically you have the, an earlier stage of the solar system, you just have a rotating star, sun, surrounded by a gaseous, dusty disk. And then out of this gaseous, dusty disk, you, you, you condense out all these different kinds of planets, right? And uh, you don't have hot Jupiter, right? Everything is pretty ordered moving in the same direction, same plane, right? So that's, uh, that, is, uh, that is consistent with the general picture. But the yes. Jupiter, Jupiter system is indeed unusual, right? And they are not that common, but it's common enough. The 5% of the, of the star have hot Jupiters, right? Yeah, so but I was thinking that the Ju Jupiter, out on Jupiter could be, you know, it's... It's obviously um, not a very big body compared to the sun, but it has yeah. a lot of mass. Mm -hmm. And so seven degrees or so misalignment that we see uh, on bodies inside that system, can that be, can that be attributed to Jupiter's effect? Uh, I, I'm actually not sure the, the misaligned, which misalignment so of mentioned that it is very very orderly, but we have you know a few degrees of misalignment in the solar. Oh, yes. Yeah, the few degree thing, there are many different stories. <laughs> yes, yeah. we don't quite understand the few degree things. It could be a fluctuation, right? And uh, if you want to ask, you know, what's the origin of that seven degree misalignment? Why the sun? What I'm talking about here, let me just be more precise since you asked, right? In the solar system, all the planets are in the same plane. Yeah. Within, the, within two degrees, within okay. two degrees. But the sun's the sun's spin axis is misaligned with the planet's orbital axis by seven degrees. Mm. So two degrees, the plane, all the planets within a plane within two degrees, but the sun's equator, rotational equator, it's offset by seven degrees. 
Now, if you're asking what's the origin of that two degrees, why not zero? <laughs> what's the origin of that seven degree? Why not zero? That's a difficult question. Okay, so the two degrees, maybe you can think it's just, you know, you can't be so perfect, right? They have some mutual perturbation, you know, they're not perfectly, you know, not two degrees, very small angle, if you think about it, right? Yeah. Now, seven degrees began to be worrisome. <laughs> okay, there are kind of different stories about where the seven degree may come from. Uh, including the most recent one, recent suggestion is that uh, maybe Planet Nine. You heard about maybe you heard some people heard about Planet Nine had played a role in in giving rise to in producing that seven degrees degree uh, misalignment between the sun, sun's rotation axis and the planet planet's orbital axis. Again, the the story there is that it's similar to what I just talked about. Is that Planet Nine, even though it's very small mass. It's actually it's gravity from the planet nine. It's actually acting on the planet solar system. It's actually gradually changed, has changed the orientation of the planetary system a little bit. Yeah, I call planet nine the revenge of Pluto. Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, so I want to go to another paper, uh, Don. So in 2018, you had a paper: black hole and neutron star binary mergers. Yes. In triple systems, yes. merger fraction and spin orbit misalignment. So, so we're not talking about um, star planet systems here. Uh, so, so you have so a triple system, um, two black holes and a neutron star or something like that. Yes. Okay. So this is another. That's a more recent discovery. As you, some of your re uh, audience may have heard, it's a. Uh, you know, uh, in the last few years, uh, the gravitational wave astronomy had become a possibility, had become a reality, actually. Yeah. Uh, by now, as of today, we now have um, 50 neutron black hole binary, black hole system merging, have been, merger have been detected. So these are two black holes with mass 10, 20, 30, 40 solar mass. They come together, they merge. In that process, they produce gravitational waves, and that gravitational waves have been detected by the laser uh, interferometer gravitational observatory called LIGO, right? And um, and this is a big discovery was first announced in 2015. By now, as I said, they are we now have uh, 50 discoveries of this kind of thing, right? Um, now. This is very exciting, of course, uh, because really it's a new window you into the universe. You're finding this black hole are invisible, of course. You cannot see, they don't emit any light, not x-rays, nothing, right? But they do emit gravitational waves, right? Okay. And they can be detected, have been detected. Um, now, so the question is, uh, how do you make this black hole, merging black hole binary, how they come about? Yeah. Okay, so I don't know whether I should go back to discuss gravitational wave, that kind of thing. So like that. Yes. Yeah, we talked a little bit about LIGO and the gravitational waves. Um, and so, yeah. so, so, um, so gravitational waves, you know, essentially when large bodies merge, um, it's a little bit counterintuitive. Uh, it could also be almost be called gravitational radiation, isn't it? It's the same thing, yes, gravitational radiation, yes. So basically when two big mass, two big mass moving around each other, 
they radiate gravitational waves. They basically yeah. distort the space-time, and that distortion propagate away the yeah. ripple of space-time and then propagate to Earth. And then the observatory, you know, LIGO detected, right? And so that was a big discovery, basically. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and so, so in this paper, um, so you talk about chaotic dynamics of stellar spin in, in binary. So, so, so what do you mean by that? But this other paper, we're I thought we're talking about, are we talking oh, about, yeah. Uh, some of this. So mergers in triple systems. So yes. merger fraction and spin orbit. Yeah, yeah, okay. Spin orbit misalignment. But, but these are black holes and neutrons. Okay, so let me have it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let me back up a little bit. Okay, so we are yeah. doing this, uh, we're discussing this uh, black hole binary now, right? And LIGO have detect detected. The big question now for the community is to try to understand the origin of this merging black hole binaries. How come you have two black holes, they can come so close together, they can merge? It's not easy, right? Because usually when the two black holes, if, even if they're in binary, if they are very far away from each other, they don't merge. They, it will take more than, you know, Hubble time for them to merge. In yeah. order to, to, for them to merge within Hubble time, within, you know, the life of the galaxy, life of the system, they have to sufficiently close to each other. So the big question in our community, in for people who care about black hole, gravitational wave astronomy, is to try to understand the origin of this merging black hole. How do you bring black holes so close to each other so that they can merge in between gravitational waves? Okay, as I said, most binary, you know, okay, so I have backup. Binary, of course, is not, as I just told you before, binary is quite common. Yeah. Binary stars. So you, it's, if you look at the galaxy, there are a lot of binary stars, you know, two massive stars, 20 solar mass, 50 solar mass, they're orbiting each other, right? So if you have this massive star, they will evolve into black hole. That's how we all understand the stellar evolution, the fate of massive stars. So many massive stars will evolve into black holes. After a so, sort of a supernova? After supernova, indeed, that kind of thing. So given that we know a lot of binary star, massive binary stars, so we do expect a lot of massive, lot of binary black hole systems, two black holes orbiting each other. But they are expected to be separated very far away from each other. They are not expected to be merging, easily merging, right? So the question again, now, you, I think it may begin to uh, similarity with the planet problem. So we have these two black holes form out of binary, normal, normal binary stars, but they're far away from each other. Yeah. How do you get them so close so they mm. can merge? Mm. Okay. So, so the trick in this paper we're doing with, you mentioned this paper uh, two years ago, where what we are saying is that, you know, you have two binary black holes, they're far away from each other. One way to bring them closer together is to imagine they are the third body, a no. tertiary body. Yeah. Far away, really far away. So even though the tertiary body is far away, its gravity is acting on the binary black hole. It can push them closer, you know, put them in the elongated orbit. So that over time. Over, over time. time, over long time. Yeah, indeed. Right, and they can come close, and once they come closer together, sufficiently close, gravitational radiation can take over. 
can can make them merge. So so you see that that's why I'm saying that these two paper had even though it's very very different topic. They yeah. actually had the same similar kind of mechanics. It is, yeah. And so this uh, this third body you're talking about, Dong, it doesn't have to be a black hole. It can be a neutron star or something like that. It has to be, yeah, it can be neutron star. It can be other things, but it, you do have to be sufficiently strong. Yeah. Of course, if you have just a little tiny thing, of course, you, know, <laughs> you do need a sufficient strength. There's some constraint. I mean, it's not arbitrarily small, clearly, right? But it's um, overall, it's... Um, it's um, it can be very far away, okay. So this two black hole, for example, could be like ten solar mass, ten plus ten solar mass, each have ten solar mass. The third body could be ten solar mass, but could be hundreds of times away from this mutual separation. So you can yes. see the effect, right? It's a, it's a it's a very feeble effect, gravity. Yeah. But the gravity, as you probably know, it's it's very long ranging. You cannot hide gravity. Well, you cannot shield it you know, like electric force, magnetic force. You can protect it. Gravity is always there. You can, it's always there, even though it's very far away. The, and then we also have time. The time helps, right? Um, and over time, the gravity from this distant companion black hole, companion neutron star, companion thing, right? Tertiary body, it's pushing the inner orbit into elongated shape. They get very close. So, so, so I want to understand this, Dong. So. If we look at the Milky Way, we know there is a supermassive black hole at the center of it. Mm -hmm. We don't know the dimensionality. So, so what what is sort of the what's the distance from us to the center of the Milky Way? Okay, it's about the eight kilopascals. It's about twenty five thousand light years. So twenty five thousand light years, and we know that we have a supermassive black hole sitting there. Yes. Wouldn't it have effects on us? I mean, wouldn't it? Have question. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. This is a one has to. Yeah. In, we have to calculate it, this thing. Yes, indeed. So when I say the, you know, indeed, I mean, you. This is a very good question. You know, this. That's why we need to. I cannot answer this sort of a uh, sort of qualitatively, right? Because I just emphasize to you that uh, you know, in this uh, black hole system, you have a very distant companion. Even though it's very feeble, it can do them to change the orbit. But you do have to be sufficiently, you cannot be infinitely far away. Right. If it's too right. far away, it's not going to be effective, right? I mean, it's going yeah. to be, you have to be sufficiently close. So, so it's uh, like, this so. About this triple system, we are talking about maybe a few thousand light years sort of separation. No, not that far away. No, no. No. No, 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 I'm not talking about that. So we are talking about, for example, we are talking about this binary, for example, the two black holes, 10, 20 plus 20 solar mass. They may be separated by, let's say, um, <clears throat> 20 AU. So it could be the distance between the Sun and the Jupiter. So that's pretty far away. And then the companion could be several hundred AU. Several. So, you know, several hundred, several thousand AU. So it's, uh, you know, it's uh, not not uh, thousands of light. Years. Okay, so so it's uh, it's uh, it's a matter of that's why we need a mass to really quantify this kind of things. Yeah, yeah. So it is far away compared to the separation. So if the separation is this, that guy, the comp tertiary companion, could be hundreds of times distant, more distant than the separation. Right. So in that sense, it's it's it's, it's pretty far away, but. Yeah, Again, so even, it will not be very far. If it's too far, then it's not 
not going to be helped. Of course, we're we're safe. We're I think our solar system is safe for the supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy. If you do the calculation, it's completely fine. Okay. You think they're safe till next election then? Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, so, so hundreds of light years. So, so, so the, the process here you're saying is sort of similar. Yeah. The misalignment that we saw in the hot Jupiter systems, the process is somewhat similar. There is a third object mm -hmm. that is sort of influencing the two dynamics. Yes. Is of bringing the, the black holes together. Indeed, so indeed, indeed, yes. Yeah. And so so I guess it's sort of a runaway system, right? When when you bring it to some critical distance between the two, then they sort of take over, I would think, right? Indeed. Well, once you get closer enough, gravitational wave will... Gravitational wave emission, it's efficient only when things two big objects moving around each other sufficiently closely together. If they're too far away, they, they are very feeble. The gravitational wave is not going to be, be be able to bring them together, right? Um, so that's, uh, yeah, it is, it, it, that's the way to think about it, right? So um, again, initially, these two black holes are far away. They don't do anything, but with the help of a distant tertiary companion, they come, they become elongated orbit, become close enough for gravitational wave to become important. And then the gravitational wave then take over, make them merge. And that that's one of the ways of making this merge black hole, black hole merger that have been detected, right? Now, yeah. uh, this paper also discussed spin. Yeah. Uh, spin orbit, right? Now this spin, no, it uh, has not been measured for the black hole, right? So for the for the black hole, well, I should, I should back up a little bit, okay? So, when LIGO detect this merging black hole binaries, they detect, you know, just two same merger, they can actually extract useful information from the merging system. They can get the mass, masses of individual black hole, yeah. merging black hole. And sometimes they can also get information about the spin axis, spin of the black hole, not whole information because they, I mean, they're the limited, very difficult measurement. They can get, in particular, they can get some idea about the the spin orbit angle, the 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 some kind of the the angle between the spin axis of individual black hole and the orbit of the binary black hole. So, so we are so when we look at LIGO data, we are sort of looking at so we can see the shape uh, is I don't know the right term, but the shape of the merger of the waveform. Of the gravitational waveform, it's sort of wave waveform. The shape, how the yeah. waveform evolve in time. They can measure that kind of thing. Allows us to sort of conjecture on the spin of the two black. Yeah, the, the spin sort of enter in a very subtle way. The spin in especially certain component. They cannot get the whole information. They can get the the sort of the spin. The, the, each black hole has spinning, has a spin. The projection of the spin onto the on the, in the in the orbital axis, we can measure yeah. that component. Okay, so there's some some limited information on that spin now. Uh, yeah. For some of the systems among the fifty that have been dis, dis, detected, and um, it's very interesting. So because some of these systems they have, they find that projected spin, it's small. You know, means so you again you have a binary orbiting each other. The yeah. black hole may be spinning very fast, but when you project it, 
it's very small. That means it's actually maybe perpendicular. Maybe it's sort of the maybe the spin axis is perpendicular to the orbital axis. If you can see mm -hmm. what I'm saying, right? Mm -hmm. Again, you have this. Just imagine this dumbbell. The binary is a dumbbell, right? Yeah, orbiting each other, right? The dumbbell is rotating, right? And then each each lobe has a little axis. But imagine this, this axis of the spin axis is actually perpendicular to this this uh, rotation of the dumbbell. <laughs> it's perpendicular. So, so 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 that means there's some kind of misalignment. Mm. The angle between the spin axis of the black hole and the orbital axis of the binary is misaligned. It's very tentative at this point, of course, it's very tentative because uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult measurement, right? It's very tentative, but there's some indication that maybe misaligned. So that shows up, goes into your hypothesis that there is a third body involved. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of a, that's a possibility. That's a, I wouldn't say we're still early in this, uh, in understanding some of these things, you know, still we need more data, uh, but this, it's certainly a possibility that, um, that uh, I mean, the one of the ways to bring two black holes together, right? And uh, so I should, you know, this is a very similar. Again, this is a, even though these two topics I talked about planets, hot Jupiter, and merging black hole. They're very different topic, but there's some underlying similar physics idea. Actually, quite similar. They're all having to do with, you know, external body changing the orbital orientation of these inner bodies, right? Um, so it's a very, so that's, that's what we're doing astrophysics with uh, all kinds of things, the, the similar physical principle, but that can, can actually can be applied to different situations. I should, I should perhaps add this, add this, this effect has a name. I, I'm talking about this effect of this, um, you know, this, this effect that external body changing the shape, orbital shape of the right. inner binary. It's called Lidov cosi effect. Lidov Koza effect. So Mikhail Lidov, it's a it's a Russian so, former Soviet Union uh, planetary scientist. Koza, it's a Japanese astronomer. So uh, they discovered this effect in the 1960s. Mm. Now, in the what context? It's very interesting. In 1960s, Lidov, uh, I think they were. If you look at the paper, they were they were worrying about the the, the safety of uh, artificial satellite around the Earth. Yeah. So you, know, you have Earth has this satellite around the Earth, right? The artificial satellite, of course, they are very close to the Earth. They usually move in a perfect circular orbit. Right, right. So they worry about, at that time, there, there was a worry. They worried about what happened if this, uh, some, for some reason, the orbit of the satellite become elongated, become yeah. eccentric. That would be very bad, right? right? Yeah. Because it would crush onto the ground. Yeah, yeah. Right. So they were worried that the moon, even the moon, it's the, the our moon, it's very small mass. They were worried that gravity of the moon will act on the orbit of the satellite. It's still a binary system. Well, the the, the satellite <laughs> around the uh, satellite yeah. around the Earth is a binary. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. The moon is another is a distant body orbiting around <laughs> Earth. Right. So the lead off at least was worried about you know the moon's gravity maybe even though it's very weak. Over time, it will change the orbit shape mm -hmm. of the satellite, making the satellite elongated orbit, and that the satellite will crush into the into the surface of the Earth. That would be very bad, right? So this is what he discovered this effect 
lead off Koza effect, right? And Koza studied also later. Um, so that's the that origin of this effect. Is that a, is that a measurable effect? Do Sorry? We see? Is that a measurable effect? Do we actually see that? Well, fortunately, Fortunately, the satellite is safe. You know, the moon's gravity is not strong enough to 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 push the uh, push the moon satellite. But I mean, they had to worry about it because it's it's not yeah. was not obvious, right? Because uh, you know, in astronomy, you have a lot of time. You want to you know this thing, you want to make sure this. Uh, I mean, the satellite can last you know tens of years, <laughs> at least right. five years, ten years, right? So at least for over this you know decades year time scale, it's it's pretty safe. The moon's gravity is not enough to push, push it, to push the uh, satellites up in the very elongated shape, right? So that satellite is safe. But anyway, they discovered this effect, right? So that's why we are basically we are basically just uh, a different system with similar kind of ideas. Basically, we just need to rescale things, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so they said they worried about it, but the effect is not high enough for us to really worry about it, but. You're applying the same ideas in the hot Jupiter systems as well as the, the black hole mergers. Yes. Um, I, I want to go into a few of your <laughs> recent papers. Okay. Technical, hopefully we can keep it. <laughs> okay. So, so one of them is circular chaos in white dwarf planetary systems. So you say the overlap of nonlinear circular resonances in planetary yeah. chaotic circular evolution yeah. of test particles. Okay. Time scales of circular chaos can excite particles eccentricity to a value okay. in the unity, leading to tidal interactions of collisions with the system's central star. So 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 what do you mean by test particle here? Okay. So let me go back up with the background. White dwarf, okay, so the end state of stellar evolution. So the sun, our sun, will eventually become white dwarf. No need to worry because it takes five million, five billion years to go, so it's fine. But eventually, our sun will become white dwarf. So in the galaxy, there's a lot of dead stars. They already become white dwarf. So the white dwarf, okay. Now, one of the puzzles in the, in the recent years is that many white dwarfs, a large fraction of white dwarf, have this strange metal, strange met, met, metals on the surface that have been detected. Now that metal, the composition of those metal is consistent with the composition of asteroid, hmm. of own solar system asteroid. So that sort of indicate, give a hint that maybe those metals, that maybe those white come from asteroid. So the idea is that basically, maybe a lot of white dwarf has some of they have been bombarded by asteroid-like materials over time. Yeah. Okay. So then the question is, you know, why do it's very small things? How do you deliver this asteroid material? They're very far away. How do you deliver them into mm. the white dwarf surface? It's not so easy, right? Mm. I mean, the asteroid is very far away. I mean, how can you do that thing, yeah. right? Yeah. So, okay, so that's where uh, we are suggesting, right? So we imagine, let's say, okay, in the, in the, let's say, in the, the before the, the star become white dwarf, it's a, it's a normal star like the sun. The sun, of course, has uh, the normal star has asteroid belt, a lot of rocks, materials, yep. right? They are populating everywhere. And they also have, the, the sun also have two or three planets, just like giant planets, just like our own solar system. Yeah. Okay. 
Now the stun evolve, become white dwarf. This some fraction of those asteroid belts, the material rocky things remains. The giant planet remains. Okay, so then, then what's going to happen? Right, you have this asteroid belt. Right, they are far away from the from the white dwarf, and you have some giant planets also there, hanging around, moving happily around the white dwarf. So how do we want to deliver? How the question is, how do you deliver this this asteroid belt material, hmm. rocky bodies? Yeah, push them into the surface of the white dwarf. So yeah. again, we are using gravity. So here, what we're doing is using the gravity of the two giant planets. Okay, the gravity of the two giant planets push the rocky bodies in the asteroid belt, push them into highly elongated orbit. So this will be in our case will be like uh, Jupiter and Saturn or something. Will be like Jupiter, Saturn, like like things. Yeah. Okay. And they push the thing, and then they 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 they. they 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 make the grab through the gravity the gravity of this Jupiter and Saturn, of the white dwarf, uh, excite eccentricity pushing the eccentricity of the asteroid in a very elongated orbit, and and then if the eccentricity is large enough sufficiently elongated then the asteroid will be pushed into the surface of the white dwarf. Okay, now the process that's where it get technical but rough is is in the process how you how the gravity works. It's yeah. complicated because it's a over a long time scale, right? But essentially, it's the gravity of these two giant planets acting on the body, the rocky body, right? Pushing it into it. The rocky body behave like test mass. So when you yeah. ask, what's the test mass? Well, it's because the rocky body, the asteroid, has a mass that's much, much smaller than the giant planet. So it, for this problem, the, the rocky body is like test mass, right? Yeah, so so I guess I don't know much about this, Dong, but um, my understanding is that the sun will become a red giant first, right? So, Indeed. So it will blow off, I would imagine, Mercury, Earth, and Mars and stuff like that. So it will yes. sort of clean up the space, right? Yeah, yeah, clean the inner solar system, but the outer one is okay. Jupiter outer. is okay. <laughs> Very good, yeah, yes. You're absolutely right. The inner solar system, Mars, those things will be, be, be not, you know, Mercury, they'll be cleaned out. But uh, the asteroid belt, they're far away, and then the giant planet, they are, they are safe, right? And uh, so so what we did in this paper is to work out that sort of in de detail, detailed way exactly under what condition yeah. the gravity from the from the two giant planets acting on the bodies in the asteroid belt can push the rocky body into very eccentric orbit and then and, contaminate and, the white dwarf. Okay. Yeah. And the process is uh, it has to do with this chaotic dynamics, basically. So what happens is that these two giant planets they're orbiting each other, their motions are not very regular. You know, they are you need a you need a actually actually you need a three, three giant planets. Two a two. They are not very regular, they're perturbing each other. Right, and then the motion is not exactly circular, so they, they through some resonant interactions, chaotic motion, they can actually push the rocky body into the eccentric orbit. Okay, what, under some conditions. What will be the diameter of the sun when it becomes a white dwarf? It'll be pretty small, I would think, right? 
That's exactly right, right? So indeed, the white dwarf, when the sun becomes white dwarf, its uh, its radius will be like the Earth's radius. Oh, wow. Okay. So, okay, so that is why, that is why you really need a very elongated orbit, right? To be able to push it, right? So it's actually not so easy. Right? It has eyes. It has to be a precise projectile. Exactly, exactly. That's a right, that's a very nice word. You need to aim it very precisely. So it's a, it's actually not so easy, actually, um, to do, right? And uh, you need the special conditions. The two giant planets must be certain, certain has some eccentricity, you know, cannot be perfectly circular orbit, and must have some mutual inclination, you know, so not, not perfectly in the same plane, right? And um, yeah, the astral belt must also in certain region, then you can do these things. Then you can yeah. do this. Throwing, throwing darts. Yes. <laughs> and to, 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 right. So yeah, there's a tricky way to yeah to aim these things. Yes. You need special conditions. So, uh, so this is one of the way to deliver sort of what we call delivered asteroid material into this white dwarf using the dynamical chaotic motion of the two giant two two giant planets two or three giant planets. Yeah, so I'm going to touch on a couple of other papers. So another one that you have, you have coming out, um, giant planet scatterings and collisions, hydrodynamics, merger ejection, branching ratio, and properties of the remnants. Yeah. Planetary systems with sufficiently small orbital spacings can experience planetary mergers and ejections. Okay. The branching ratio of mergers versus ejections depends uh, sensitively on the treatment of planetary close encounters. So ejections here, um, planetary systems could essentially eject a planet, right, out into yes. space. Yes. So here we are dealing with uh, the following problem, right? You have a star, you have two giant planets, both moving around the star, but if the separation is too close, if the two planets orbit are, are, are close to very similar similar orbit, then yeah. their mutual interaction between the two giant planets can can destroy the system in two ways. One way, one of the way is that it the bigger one will act on the small one, ejecting the small one. Small one will be kicked out. Right. Another way is that they can come to so close together, collide together, collide with each other, right? Now, uh, so these people work out uh, the, the, the branching ratio, you know, under what condition they will merge and what condition they will eject, right? So um, fortunately for the Jupiter and Saturn, our own solar system, they are sufficiently far away from each other. Yeah. They're okay. A solar system is okay. Okay, a solar system is okay. They are, they are, you know, the orbit is sufficiently far away from each other. They are, they are not, they are safe, right? But it's created by God after all, so it has to be perfect. Well, anyway, but what we learned from the study of exoplanetary systems over the last two decades is that there are many diverse kind of planetary systems that are very different from our own, our own solar systems, right? And uh, so they can, this kind of thing can certainly happen. Uh, in fact, uh, some of the solar extraplanetary extra solar extra systems, they have giant planets like Jupiter, but 
unlike our own Jupiter, they are the orbit are very elongated. You know, with with a uh, you know, you know, it's actually quite strange. You know, yeah. in this picture I told you at the beginning, right? In the the way we think about planet formation, everything's ordered. You have a sun, you have a disk, right? And everything when you form, you basically everything should be quasi circular orbit. You know, ordered, right? And that's what we see in our own solar system. But in exoplanetary systems, planets outside the solar system, many giant planets have very elongated orbit, non-circular orbit. Mm. It's actually quite strange. <laughs> it's actually quite strange why they are so elongated. Yeah. Right? Well, so one of the idea is that Maybe now today we see only one planets around the star, but maybe before early on they actually had two or three planets. And one of them, one of them, one of them get kicked out. If that one of them get kicked out, what do you see today is a leftover one. The leftover yeah. one has having gone through this dynamical interactions with other uh, currently ejected one, they become elongated, right? So that's uh, that is uh, that is the. Uh, the idea, right? <laughs> That's the idea, right? And maybe, maybe the one we see today is uh, the merger product of the previous two planets, right? And uh, so, so <laughs> is it is it fairly frequent on this ejection phenomenon? I was thinking, you know, there were a lot of news about this this thing that came from out uh, outside solar system. Uh, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. Omaha, Omaha. Ah, okay. Omaha, Omaha. Omaha. Yes. Yeah. So, is is that is that something that could have been ejected by a system? Indeed, indeed. Actually, yeah, the good point you're bringing up. Indeed, <laughs> that could happen. Indeed, the you know the you have uh, extrasolar planetary systems. They have giant planets. They have a lot of rocky things. It's certainly the case that a lot of the rocky things can be can be ejected by the by the giant planet of the other solar system. Yeah. They get ejected into interstellar interstellar space. So I certainly so it's certainly true. This can happen happen quite frequently. Now, what is the probability that get our own solar system captured one of this? It's yeah. uh, difficult to evaluate because you know space is very big, right? There could be a lot that, of this. That, uh, <laughs> junk, rocky things ejected from all over the all over many different solar systems. You know, once in a while, one of these things will be captured into our own solar coming. So, so this Oumuamua certainly could be captured. Certainly, it's a it's a leading hypothesis. Indeed, indeed. So it's not an extraterrestrial craft or anything. Uh, yeah, some people you know the book my written this. It's I would say the possibility, but uh, you know, it's not the most probably the. It's not the most conservative possibility, right? And uh, I think there are conventional ways that you just said, right? This uh, this this scattering process can happen very frequently, indeed. Not only between two planets, but between planets and and rocky body, they scatter, and then the rocky thing, the small one, unfortunately, get kicked out. Right. <laughs> They're wandering in the space, and uh, right, and they are very hard to observe until they happen to wander into get captured in our own solar system, right? The membership is cancelled by the big. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. So that's uh, that is uh, that is the more likely hypothesis. I think uh, most conservative hypothesis for the 
Oumuamua, um, right, the visitor from the interstellar space. And it might have been traveling for um, a very long period of time. Indeed. So radiation would have caused it to become a lot smaller, I would think, right? If they happen to be close to one of the stars, yes, and, but in the interstellar space, they are pretty cold, so probably not. They may be, if they come to, yeah, they come to, if you pass to some other star too close, yeah. then they may be sort of diminished. That's certainly possible. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, indeed. So, so I want to uh, finish up with uh, one of your other papers that are coming out, um, Jupiter's dynamical love number. Oh. Uh, Patients <laughs> by uh, by Juno by the Juno uh, spacecraft have revealed that the, the the tidal love number of Jupiter is lower than the hydrostatic value. Uh -huh. a, 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 a sample calculation of the dynamical love number of Jupiter that explains observed anomaly. So, what exactly is the love number? Okay, the so love number is Mr. Love, Professor Love. It's a, <laughs> it's not a joke. It's a it's a professor. Uh, maybe a hundred years ago in uh, um, Oxford or Cambridge. Okay, he's the expert on elastic elastic body, uh, body elastic bodies. Okay, now what is love number? Uh, it's uh, he was the one first investigated this kind of things. Um, okay, so what happened? It's um, in general. Okay, so in the case of Saturn, right? Uh, Jupiter, right? Jupiter, uh, it's uh, you know happy rotating, uh, right? But Jupiter, of course, is orbited by several moons, Titan, some, some other things, several yeah. moons, right? The moon, even though it's very small, it has gravity, acting on Saturn, raise the tidal bulge on Saturn. Oh, on Jupiter, you mean? Oh, oh, sorry, on Jupiter, sorry, yeah. yeah. Right, the, the moon raised the tidal bulge on Jupiter, so as a result, the Jupiter is no longer sort of, uh, has this tidal bulge. Right, so it's distorted. Yeah. Now it's not, gravity, it's not not spherical anymore. It's, sort it's of not a spherical anymore. Indeed, yes, not spherical. It's distorted. Now this distorted body will produce gravitational field. That's mm. not so easy. So not just uh, what you, you know, just like point sphere. It will be different from the gravity from the spherical body. Yeah. Right. Of course. Right. Because it's distorted. The gravity gravitational field produced by the distorted Jupiter will be different from the spherical Jupiter. Okay, now this uh, Juno is a satellite launched by NASA some years ago and uh, come close to the Jupiter, Jupiter system. It's yeah. moving in the Jupiter system. It has a very precise way of measuring its own motion. So even though, so therefore actually can, even though the Jupiter's distortion by the moon Gravity is very, very small. Juno mission, the satellite spacecraft, can, was able to detect this very, very tiny, hmm. tiny grav deviation of gravity due to the distortion from the Jupiter of the Jupiter. Right. Okay, okay, so that detected that thing. And uh, this love number essentially is a measure, it's a measurement, it's a measure of how big this, this uh, distortion is. Roughly speaking, okay, in right, yeah. how big the distortion is. Okay, so what was found is that uh, when pe people can calculate the love number, of course, you know, the Newton's Newtonian gravity, right? it's not easy to calculate, but it's uh, the general idea is simple, right? It's Newton's law, your fluid body distortion, calculated thing. People can calculate it. 
it found that it found that this uh, and the, the measurement there's some deviation. The different the uh, two note measurement is diff somewhat different by four percent from the measure from the theoretical calculation, the best theoretical calculation. Okay, four yeah. percent <laughs> difference. Okay, so so okay, what's the origin of that four percent? Uh, it turns out uh, what we we studied in this paper is that uh, you know um, it's basically what happens is that this tidal bulge is not static. Usually we say well you have this this moon's far away raising a tidal bulge. It's sort of always the bulge is always sort of uh, sitting there, right? And uh, right, it's a sort of a it's a static feature. But yeah. what happens is that the moon is actually moving. Actually moving, right? It's not the moon around the Saturn. It's not a constant. It's actually moving, and also the fat. Oh, sorry, Jupiter. The Jupiter is also spinning by itself. So both of these things, the, the spinning motion of the Jupiter and the optical motion of Saturn, that implies that you know the the, the body. The, the, if you sit on Saturn, imagine yourself on sitting on Saturn. You are going to see the moon is actually moving. Yes. So that means the tidal bulge is not static. Because you're seeing the moving body, you know, the tidal bulge has to keep adjusting to the motion right. of the perturber, right? So it turns out that uh, when you do this sort of subtle calculation, taking account of this motion of the moon, right, um, of Saturn, of Jupiter, you can actually, if you do that carefully, you can account for this subtle difference between the original static calculation and the the the, the measurement from Juno, okay? Mm. Well, that's that's a, that's the sort of the little puzzle we solved basically. So it's a dynamic system. Um, I would imagine that uh, Jupiter has many moons, so yes. all of them are sort of affecting the the. All of them yes. are bulging up in different yeah. locations. Indeed, that's a very good question. Yes, yeah, indeed, Jupiter has many moons. Each moon has its own. You know, give its own tidal bulge, so yeah. there are many several different pos several different love numbers. Basically, each moon has its own. You know, give its own tidal bulge. Indeed, you are absolutely right. <laughs> so, so you have to somehow sort of uh, come up with a way to combine them all. I was uh, wondering, Dong, that do we have a precise measurement of the composition of Jupiter? Do we know the core? If there is a hard core for Jupiter and stuff like that, or that's very good question. So this would be <laughs> yes, you know. Again, there's a lot of recent progress on this, thanks to Juno, the Juno mission. Again, you have this spacecraft moving so close to the moon, so to the to the Jupiter, right? And the, the spacecraft can measure its own motion extremely accurately. So it can, if you have mass, you know, different kind of mass distribution inside. Jupiter, they can probe it. Okay, mm -hmm. so yeah, I, actually, I don't work on this in great detail, but I just heard a talk recently. Yes, indeed, uh, the Juno mission has revealed a lot of interesting internal structure of of inside of Jupiter. Right, so there is a big core, diffused core. The core is probably not very uh, traditionally thinking. It's sort of very concentrated but rather diffuse the core mm -hmm. and there are some region which is a sort of we would call convective some region is stable so mm -hmm. convective means a lot of all this motion and uh, there's all this 
so-called differential rotation. So the, the whole body is rotating, but it's uh, not precisely at the same rate. Different parts of Jupiter may rotate at a slightly different rate. And, and because of this differential rotation, they, they generate the, the distortion, rotational distortion, right? When you rotate the body, the body is oblate. The yeah, rotational yeah. distortion can be, can be different, and that can change the gravitational field produced by Jupiter, and that can be detected by Juno. So that have been detected. So from those detection, people can infer all these kind of things about internal composition, the, the size of the core, the rotation, differential rotation on inside the, inside of Jupiter. Okay, and uh, so there's a lot of progress on this actually. And you have that red spot going on there too, right? So that is hundreds of years. That's hundreds of years. Yes. Hundreds. Yes. Yes, it's still somewhat that people think they understand it, but I don't understand it. I, it's a quite a non-trivial to understand. The, 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 yes, the, the atmosphere motion is a quite a quite a complicated thing. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So um, you know, there's a common theme running through all of this, which is when you observe phenomenon, sometimes there is a body out there that is actually creating the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, help you. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah, you know, one of the common themes that uh, all this, uh, I guess I talked about it. Uh, you could say, well, it's F equals MA, Newton's law. But you can see this F equals MA, we learned in sort of high school. You know, they put in different context. They can play, you know, can play, you know, can do very different things, right? And something, sometimes a very subtle way can do all kinds of tricks and <laughs> creating variety of phenomena. So that's actually quite interesting. So uh, <laughs> ranging from planets to black holes. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Dong. Thanks so much okay. for spending time with me. Okay, great pleasure to talk about this thing. Thank you. See you. Bye-bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.